The first reading is Deuteronomy chapter 27 from verse 9 to verse 13. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Be silent, Israel, and listen. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. Obey the Lord your God and follow his commands and decrees that I give you today. On the same day, Moses commanded the people, When you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the second reading is from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means son of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, please keep your Bibles open because I will refer to the passage regularly and it's important that you look down, make sure I'm not pulling any tricks on you. I'm actually talking about 
what's there. Uh, I hope that you've been enjoying the Gospel of Mark so far over the past few weeks and that you're benefiting from reading it. Uh, I'm definitely getting a lot out of preparing these each week, so at the very least, there's that benefit for me. Uh, This is the last week, though, that Mark will be focusing on Jesus' identity, right? So the first three chapters have all been about who Jesus is, who he claims to be. And from next week, we'll get into chapter four, and we'll start seeing how Mark presents the different responses that we get to Jesus. How do people respond to this knowledge of who he is? So it's important that by the end of the first three chapters, we kind of have a pretty good handle on who it is that Jesus is claiming he is. Because from there, we'll be seeing how various people respond to this news, and it's definitely varied. That we see that Jesus has claimed to be the promised king with authority over the spiritual and the physical worlds. And with that, that he's claimed the authority to forgive sin, and that's no small thing, and will demand a response from us. And so for now, let's get into this final part of the first section of Mark. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We pray now that as we consider it, that you would work through it, that you'd help us to love and know you more. Father, we thank you that you have renewed your kingdom in Jesus and allowed us to be part of it. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, I don't know how you respond when people come forward with a new initiative. Uh, I feel like in a workplace, that's kind of the moment when everyone's eyes roll, right? When the manager comes in and he's got this brand new thing that's going to change the game forever. Uh, Some people here work in the tech industry. I imagine it's just a never-ending cycle of people talking about how the world's going to change with this new software or new thing that's come in. Uh, One that I remember very clearly when I was in high school was Kevin07. Does anyone remember Kevin07? It was going to change the world, right? Everything was going to be fixed. Everything was going to be awesome. Uh, I don't know where you stand politically. It doesn't really bother me at all. But it was one of those moments, right, where the country was kind of captured by this thing, um, where normally, and I think afterwards as well, we start to become very skeptical. When someone has a new initiative, when they're changing the game, you're not going to look at things the same once again, ever again, once it comes through. We're quite skeptical. Uh, In fact, usually we find that it doesn't kind of have any depth to it. But what we see today is that Jesus is bringing about a renewal. He's bringing about a new thing. But unlike the other initiatives that we often feel a little bit skeptical of, we see that Jesus is very quick to provide depth behind the things that he's saying. Big stuff happens on mountains in the Bible. Uh, Anyone who's kind of heard Sunday school stories, you notice mountains, they're in there all the time. Sinai, Gerizim, Ararat, right? They're moments when God establishes his plans, times when he ordains people for himself, when he lays down the law, and now when he starts a new chapter for his people. Uh, Leaders who experience this are men like Noah, Abraham, Moses. I could go on. There's something significant about when God's leaders find themselves on mountains, and today is no different. In our first reading from Deuteronomy, uh, we see Moses, and we heard about the establishment of the 12 tribes of Israel, which was the formation of the nation of Israel, uh, the nation that God will work through through the rest of the Old Testament. He established people that he had chosen. Now, with all this in mind, look at verse 13 with me. Jesus went up onto a, mountain, onto a mountainside and called to him those who he wanted, and they came. 
He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. I'm going to skip some of the brackets. Simon, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Just as we saw 12 tribes, Jesus appoints 12 men to be his apostles, the ones that he will send out, the ones by which he will spread the word of his kingdom and begin to establish what is to come. Now, by placing himself on a mountain and specifically choosing 12, Jesus is saying something highly significant, that this is the new Israel, This is the new kingdom. This is the new chapter for God's people. A little challenge for this week, those of you in community groups, uh, see who in your community group can name the 12 apostles from memory. Uh, I fail at this every time, so don't feel bad about it. Uh, The next two sections of our passage, though, and these kind of two stories that seem like they're separate, well, actually, they make a lot more sense when we think about them in the context Mark is showing us that Jesus is intentionally establishing, reforming, and renewing the kingdom of God and what that kingdom is like. And the rest of our passage are telling us about this kingdom and what it looks like. Check out verse 20 with me. Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Well, we'll come back to his family in a minute, uh, but for now, we have these guys who have come down to accuse Jesus So they're they're most likely not Pharisees. These guys are probably another group of teachers of the law that have come down to accuse Jesus. They've come down to set the record straight. Uh, But first, I want to talk about, are there people in your life that you know you cannot be on a team with? These might be people that you don't like. They may be people that you deeply love. Uh, My dad is someone who I deeply love, but I cannot be on a team with him for anything. Uh, This is for a few reasons. One is that we're too similar, right? We're super similar. We're equally competitive. Uh, We both like to take charge of situations, especially when the other person is involved. Uh, There was a, a, we had an opportunity at one point where we were going to apply for The Amazing Race. uh, And a friend of mine who works in television said, you guys would be perfect, right? Because you'd both do really well at the challenges, but you would completely implode. Right? You, you guys would individually, you might actually win it on your own, but put you guys together, you will definitely lose, and that's because you will turn on each other, right? There'll be a minute when one of you will be, and I know this for a fact because it's actually just happened while playing uh, games or sports together, where one of us will be like, hey, I think it would be better if we did this. And someone will be like, yeah, I think it would be better if you shut up. And that's just kind of how our interaction would end up going. He's someone who I know I can't be on a team with because we will go against each other, and if we go against each other, the whole thing will fall apart. Now, these guys have come down from Jerusalem to deal with a troublemaker. They're trying to convince people that he's not a good guy. In fact, they're trying to convince him that he, that convince people that he is evil. He's clearly a threat to them. Uh, look at the sheer number of people that are gathered there to hear his teaching. 
But it's interesting because they accuse him of being able to cast out demons because he is working for the forces of Satan, that he's working for the same guys as the demons are. Now, Jesus responds in his usual way with a couple of parables to mean that I have a job and we have to actually work a bit harder to understand what's going on. Um, But they're aimed at taking apart their argument and then also making a statement about what he has come to do. So look at verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. He first takes apart the logic of their statement, right? Satan cannot oppose himself. If he did that, then he'd be like me and my dad, right? Going against each other, completely self-defeating. Why would he be undoing the work of demons in people if he wanted that work to go on? Why would Jesus do that? In fact, the very situation that they're witnessing is the undoing of evil in the world. And so therefore, Jesus must not be on that team, that he must actually be with another group, that he must be a force for good. He then expands on this to explain his work and the type of kingdom that he's bringing about. Look at verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, Jesus is saying that in order for him to take back the physical world from Satan, in order for him to reclaim the house from Satan, then the devil has to be restrained. And that is exemplified in what Jesus is doing by casting out demons. He is reclaiming the world for himself through the restraining of evil. He's demonstrating an authority over it, and and so therefore cannot be evil himself. And so what Mark is saying to us is that the new kingdom that Jesus is establishing, the new chapter in the life of his people, involves the defeat of evil, the restraining of Satan in this world, and ultimately will lead to his vanquishing. Don't get to say say the word vanquishing very often, right? Couldn't resist. Once and for all, when he returns for glory in the last days. He then turns it around, right, as he usually does with the teachers of the law, and he accuses them instead by explaining the seriousness of the accusations that they're making against him and against the Holy Spirit. Now, in the context of the Gospel of Mark, and I reckon Matthew too, uh, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the attributing of the work of the Spirit, of Jesus, to Satan. So it's to say that the work that Jesus is doing, the work of the Spirit that Jesus is doing, is from Satan. In fact, it's to deny who Jesus is. That is, to never accept his identity as king and lord, to turn from him completely, and that that is to put yourself outside of the kingdom, right? I reject the king, therefore I am outside of the kingdom. 
Now, I'm going to dwell on this point a little bit longer than I normally would because I, I think that there may be some reasonable responses to it that come from us. For some of us, the response might be, but I still see so much evil in the world, right? I still see so many things going on that I just don't think are right. Why hasn't Jesus just eliminated it here in Mark? Why is there a waiting time? Now, there are two answers to this. Um, The first is that just like the miracles in Mark, the casting out of demons here isn't the main point, right? It's what that says about Jesus and his kingdom. Mark's making a point. Jesus is making a point about his kingdom, and that is what the focus is supposed to be, that the king is the defeater of evil, and his kingdom that we look forward to is one where evil will be gone. But why is it something that we're waiting for? And we're given an answer to this uh, in a later letter written by one of the disciples, Peter, uh, in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If evil is eliminated, then all who have not turned from evil will be too. And we live in a time of opportunity, opportunity for people to be saved, opportunity for them to come to know the King, that we know evil will be eliminated. And so we have a chance to use this knowledge to save as many people as we can. Our friends who do not know Jesus, our neighbors, our workmates, Because as we see in the next section, Jesus has changed the game for what it means to enter into the family of faith. Uh, I don't know if you have people in your life that sometimes you can be embarrassed by association with. Uh, I tried to think uh, who amongst my friends was the friend that is uh, kind of most embarrassing for others to be associated with or does the most things that makes everyone else go. And I I realized, If you can't think of who that person is in your friend group, yep, I came to that realization too. And here we see a problem for Jesus' family, right? That association with him causes them problems. Verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting round him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle round him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Of all the people to challenge Jesus, I think the most reasonable comes from his family, right? I think most of us would respond negatively to our siblings claiming to be God. They've come to stop him causing a fuss and getting himself into trouble, but also, uh, we need to be, I think we can be sympathetic towards them, right? They, they have had to deal with their association with him. Uh, so people who are angry at him have also treated his family poorly. That's unavoidable. So we can have some empathy for his family at this time. But Jesus uses it as an opportunity not to disregard his family, but to continue to develop this idea of the new kingdom, the new chapter and what that's going to look like. 
In this moment, he, he isn't saying for people to disregard their families, uh, although he's going to say some uncomfortable things about that later in Mark. Rather, he is commenting on what it means to be part of his kingdom. You see, up until this point in history, membership of the community of God's people, God's family, if you will, was determined primarily on the basis of birth, of ethnicity, of the fact that you were born a Jew. Jesus is saying that in this new kingdom, it is decided on the basis of belief, of obedience to God's will on the basis of your faith in him, and that regardless of birth, that those who do not, and that regardless of birth, that those who do not believe in him, even his own blood, are not part of this new family. Now, unfortunately, at this stage in the gospel, his family do not believe in him. And so by this new standard, they are in the same category as everyone else who has rejected him so far. And this is a huge change in the culture at the time for what it means to be one of God's people. That to be part of God's kingdom where evil is defeated and cast away is to be one who believes in Jesus and does his will. Uh, now, you should know that there is a happy ending with his family who do come to faith uh, because some of the most important and actually become some of the most important evangelists of the first century uh, and even contribute to the Bible that you're holding in your hands. But this passage today, it has a joy for us but it also comes with a significant warning. The joy is that the kingdom is open to all who would believe. Uh, this, is already, this has been seen already in the choices Jesus has made about who to associate with, uh, who to eat with, uh, the evil, the uncomfortable, the outcasts, and that to believe in Jesus does not mean being part of a religious club. It means being part of a family, his family to enter into relationship with him and with all others who are also part of the family. And you'd hope that this would have a profound effect on the way that we think about our church and what we do here. That here we are part of a community of the family of Jesus and all that comes with that, right? The messiness, the joys, the disagreements, the patience that's often required with each other. But it's important that we don't forget what it is that makes us part of that family, because this is going to be what divides people, especially the teachers of the law in Mark, because it divides them out of the community of believers that they assume they are part of on the basis of who they are. And so what assumptions sneak in for us? What assumptions do we make? Consciously or subconsciously. Maybe it's church attendance, right? The fact that you're here most weeks. That's what makes you part of the kingdom, right? It's a good thing. But no. You serve in lots of ways. You're always there when people need you. You're doing the things. You're happy to fill spots on the roster whenever someone asks you. Surely that's it, right? It's a good thing. But no. You're generous to people. You're quick to look after others. You're hospitable. You'll help organize things. People can use your flat if they want to do something. A good thing. But no. Maybe you were born into a Christian family. And for you, that's what makes you a Christian. 
What badges do you wear that you use to call yourself Christian? Because none of those things that I said before, while all good things, are actually what makes each of us part of Jesus' family. But they're good boxes to tick to make ourselves feel confident, right? No, those who are part of Jesus' family are those who do his will, which means to believe in who he is and to respond to that. And so the question that we need to start asking ourselves as we get to the end of these first three chapters of Mark is, do you actually believe? Because as we turn to the next part of Mark over the next few weeks, we're going to be challenged by what the response to this truth is. It's not an easy response that God calls on his people. It's going to be hard for us to hear. And so we must first ask ourselves, do we believe in who Jesus says he is? Do you believe the words of the creed that we said at the start of the service? You see, Jesus has time and time again in the first three chapters made very exclusive claims about himself to be the king, the king with authority over all the world, to be the son of man who would rescue them from their enemies, to have authority to forgive sin, and ultimately to be God himself who is bringing about a new kingdom for his people and will defeat evil in this world. And if this is what you believe, then it's going to call for a response from you. So you must decide, because Jesus starts to make it very binary. You're in or you're not. And his teaching is going to cause problems for Jesus, just like it can cause divisions now, because it is both an easy truth and a hard truth. It's easy in that the family of Christ is open to all. But all you have to do to be part of Jesus' family is to believe in him and seek God's will in your life. But we will see that in the coming chapters that the living out of this faith is not easy. It's a hard teaching because I think for a lot of us, we kind of want that free ticket in, right? We're happy to take that. Yep, I'll just believe in Jesus and things are all sweet, right? Maybe I'll go to church on Sundays. It's not too hard to do. Maybe go to Bible study. I like hanging out with people. And if I work hard enough, I can kind of derail it enough anyway that it's just a main hangout. But when Jesus starts to put challenges on people's lives, when he starts to make claims on part of their lives or part of your life that you don't necessarily associate with church all the time, well, we're going to start to feel a tension in us. But if what Jesus says is true and he is the king who brings the forgiveness of sin and the defeat of evil and who invites you into his family that he's opened up to you, then to refuse him is to make a very significant choice. And so before we start looking at the responses to Jesus in the chapters that will follow, I think we must all think hard about whether we do believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Not because you should doubt, but that it has implications for us that we should not take lightly. The salvation of your soul, it's free, but costly. 
we will see that it's costly because it costs Jesus his life. And therefore, it cannot be cheap for us. Let's pray that we'll give this the consideration and reflection that it deserves. Please bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you that we are not ignorant, but that you have shown us the light. We thank you for showing us this truth, that in the new kingdom, we have a king who casts out evil and things are good again. We thank you that the path to being part of your family is, is found in the simple belief and following of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that before we start to consider what that really looks like in Mark, that we'd first really consider whether this is what we believe. Father, help us to know, uh, help us to understand, and help us to love him and love one another. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.